Hi there. My name is Will Harris. Perhaps you've heard of me. Probably you have not. But if you're listening to this, I could be wrong. Either way, there's a good chance that you're at least familiar with some of the interviews I've done. I've done a number of random roles interviews for the Onion AV Club. I was a contributor to the Dissolve, may it rest in peace. I did an oral history of the facts of life for Entertainment Weekly's website. I've also done pieces for IndieWire, Playboy, TV Week in Vancouver, The Virginian Pilot, Bobdos, Bullseye, Rhino Records website, seriously, the list goes on and on. Frankly, I'm exhausted. And you will be too by the time I've finished this opening spiel, but I, I promise this is just so you know what you're getting yourself into. So in an effort to branch out and do something a little bit different, I decided I wanted to start a podcast. And then, as most creative types do, I sat on the idea for two or three years, mulled it over, talked about it, until people finally got tired of hearing me say, you know, I think I want to start a podcast. At which point I realized, shit, I guess I now have to start a podcast. I had a lot of ideas, including just a straightforward interview show, but then I realized that the podcast was going to have to stand out in some way, and it's not going to rise above the other podcast if it's just a straightforward interview show. So that's when I decided to play to my strengths. Long before I started writing for the AV Club, I had always loved digging deep into an actor's back catalog and finding things that I hadn't known about before. For one thing, it had the benefit of making actors realize that, hey, this guy's actually done some research. But the end result that I loved the most was when it would inspire stories that kicked off with the words, you know, I don't think I've ever told anyone this before. I mean, that's exciting stuff for any journalist, but for a journalist who's also a pop culture geek, it's the best. So I decided I'd make that the focus of my podcast, asking about stuff that the average person doesn't know about because it's so obscure. And as a journalist-slash-pop culture geek who's also a longtime fan of the band The Trash Can Sinatras, there was no other name I could possibly select for this endeavor than Obscurity Knox. And better yet, the band has graciously given me their blessing. So, God bless those guys. So anyway, to make things a bit more interesting beyond just this unique idea, and hopefully in a way that'll actually sway people into listening to the whole podcast and even come back for the next episode, I decided to add, let's call it a game show element— Once someone's agreed to do the podcast, I'll send over the list of projects that I've selected. First of all, it means that they won't be completely blindsided by my selections. Uh, I'm sure they have not thought about some of these things in years, if not decades, uh, so they can brack their brains and hopefully come up with at least one anecdote for each. Uh, But I haven't done enough interviews to know that it's impossible to pull together a list like this that won't cause an actor to cringe. Uh, The list of projects will also be accompanied by three virtual cards, if you will, uh, which the actor can play during the course of the interview. First, there's the Just Say No card. If the actor wants to completely and totally avoid discussing one of the projects on the list, they can use their Just Say No card to, you guessed it, Just Say No. When this card is used, that's it. No follow-up questions are permitted. That's not to say that I won't make a bemused or snarky remark in reaction to their decision to use the card on that project, but beyond that, it's straight on to the next one. The next card is the one-liner. The actor can use this card to avoid going into significant detail about a particular project, but the caveat is that they do still have to offer at least a one-line explanation as to why they don't want to go into significant detail. Of course, that has to be truthful. I mean, not that it really matters, because I'm not going to be able to check the veracity in mid-interview. But it can be as generic or as tantalizing as the actor wants to make it, because, like the Just Say No card, it allows for no follow-ups, which is probably going to suck for me if it's particularly tantalizing, but gotta have a game that's the game the third card is the switcher card if an actor can't think of a decent anecdote for a particular project or more likely if it's just yet another project they don't particularly want to talk about the switcher card provides them with the opportunity to switch that project out in favor of a different but equally obscure project i mean it's called obscurity knocks you know standards got to be maintained so there you go that's what you've gotten yourself into it's also what Mackenzie Aston got himself into, as he was, God help him, kind enough to agree to be my first guest. And when I say guest, of course, I mean guinea pig. 
he and I first crossed paths when he participated in that aforementioned oral history of the facts of life, but he's been out of peak skill for quite some time. In fact, over the past couple of years, he's squared off against John Hamm during the final season of Mad Men, uh, turned up on Grey's Anatomy, NCIS, Criminal Minds, Shameless, Bones, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Scorpion, Castle, and he had a recurring role in Scandal last season that carried over into this season as well. And yet he still agreed to do this thing. Not only that, but he was a good sport throughout. So even though this should in no way be considered anything other than a rough draft of what I hope this podcast will ultimately become, I, I think it's successful enough to give you at least an idea of its potential. That again, I could be horribly, horribly wrong, but I'm sure that you'll let me know either way. So for a detailed look at the projects we cover in this week's podcast, head over to newsreviewsinterviews.com. But for now, courage. And sorry in advance about the abrupt ending. It'll be better next time. Probably. Thanks for listening. All right, so well, the premise of this podcast is that I will be asking you about a dozen obscure uh, items from your uh, IMDb listing. Uh, some of them you may not even remember, although because of the fact that they are so obscure, this is a case where I made sure to pass the list along to you in advance. Uh, and for those listening for the first time, which is everyone, uh, you actually have three opportunities to avoid responding these uh, items. Three, three cards um, I can play, if you will. Exactly. Right. You've got the uh, the just say no, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, if you want to completely and totally avoid discussing uh, one of the projects, you can uh, use that card, as it were. Uh, and I will not be able to ask you any follow-up questions. All right. That, that uh, one just uh, sort of straight up it just puts the, the kibosh on any further discussion. Exactly, which is going to be... Uh, Horrible for me. <laughs> I do love my followers, but not so bad for the for the uh, contestant. Uh, exactly. Right. Uh, then the the next card is called the one liner, uh, where you can also avoid uh, going into uh, detail about a particular project on the list, but uh, you do at least have to give a one sentence explanation as to why you don't want to go into detail. That's, that seems reasonable to me. That seems reasonable. Yes, yeah, so it could be as generic as. Uh, it was no fun. It doesn't matter. You've got to say something. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. And the last one is uh, the switcher card, uh, which is uh, if you've got still another project that you just maybe don't have a decent anecdote for or one that you just don't want to discuss, uh, you can switch it out for another project of approximately the same level of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I will, uh, I will say that thankfully... Uh, well, almost the majority of the motion pictures in which I've appeared uh, have been able to maintain a, a very uh, even level of uh, obscurity. <laughs> well, good. There'll be some consistency. Yeah, that's right. That's what we want. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, I will start off with uh, a project which I believe, at least, you know, again, based on IMDb, which is often not entirely accurate, mm. uh, was your first time uh, in front of the camera, uh, a project called Lois Gibbs and the Love Canal, TV movie. Lois Gibbs and the Love Canal, uh, which, uh, if you're not from the East Coast, uh, can be a title that might, uh, whoa, give you a little bit of pause uh, for a second, <laughs> uh, because it sounds like it could almost be the kind of film you don't want to see children uh, in. But yes, uh, it was the very first uh, uh, television movie, movie uh, job, a professional job that I had, uh, I think 1982, which yes. would put me uh, around nine years of age. Uh, okay. And it is about uh, an area of, I believe, New Jersey called Love Canal, which was like a housing uh, community uh, that was unfortunately ab uh, abutted uh, a, a little creek 
that was just downstream from uh, a toxic waste uh, site. And so uh, <clears throat> in this is in real life, uh, sadly. Uh, there were a number of people that were uh, made super sick by uh, the release of a certain uh, number of chemicals uh, from a facility uh, up the river, uh, as it were. And, uh, and then there was a lady that lived in the housing community named Lois Gibbs, who... Um, who uh, went about uh, championing the cause of the people that l lived there uh, and helped uh, raise some consciousnesses uh, about uh, the craft that was in uh, in the groundwater, in the basements, in the in the area where the kids would play. I auditioned uh, originally for uh, a larger part uh, to play <laughs> Lois Gibbs' uh, son. I can't remember his character's name. Uh, I did not get that part. However. Uh, they did ask me if I was interested in playing Tony Belinsky, who was uh, a character that was a, f a friend of uh, a friend of uh, Mar uh, Marsha Mason's son or Lois Gibbs' son in the film, uh, and I was uh, happy to take it. It also helped, I will say, uh, I think that Glenn Jordan, who directed uh, the TV movie, uh, had probably directed my mom in about four or five TV movies to that point. <laughs> in his career. And then I think, again, they worked together two or three more times. I actually just recently auditioned for him. He's, he was uh, directing a play up in Santa Barbara. Uh, and oh. so I got to walk in as a 42-year-old uh, and say, hey, nice to see you again. Thanks for that, that old job. I will tell one quick story sure. about the experience because it was great to get a job. It was great to be nine years old and lucky to be working in the business of show and obviously would not have gotten the job, I don't think. Uh, you know, without the uh, at least proximity to my parents, you know, uh, and their successes. Uh, this sure. this business is rife with uh, you know nepotism, and also no, say it isn't so. <laughs> and also, you know, uh, it helps uh, to be familiar to people. So I get I get pretty lucky uh, in that respect. Um, I pissed off the prop guy so much <laughs> on uh, that job. I think it was the second or third day of work, and they were getting um, the uh, you know set decoration uh, ready, and we were going to see inside uh, Tony Belinsky's room, or maybe the garage out in front of the house or something like that, and uh, the prop guy was going about making sure the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, everything was, looked, you know, authentic and real to the time period, and like it was a little kid's room or uh, stuff like that. So he came up to me, he goes, "Hey, come here." He brought me to the truck, the prop truck, and he said, "I need you to, I need you to sign this glove, but I need, I need you, it's a, a baseball mitt." He gave me a catcher's mitt. He said, "I need you to put your name on it, you know, like you'd put your name on it." And me, you know, like being a child of show business, uh, completely presumed that he meant autograph the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so in like in the best cursive I could muster at nine years old, I signed out you know real big letters on along the thumb Tony Belinsky, which was uh, a lot of fun to spell out. But he took one look at the thing, man, and he I could I could still see his face going, oh god damn it, uh, or oh, gosh darn it. <laughs> I said like, what? What do you mean? He goes, no, I didn't mean like this. Oh f and. You know, it's a permanent marker, so I, I sort of, I sort of ruined his day on my first, uh, <laughs> on my first job. <laughs> I don't think it ever saw the, uh, the camera though, so everything worked out for the best. Well, your, uh, your mother in the film was uh, Roberta Maxwell, who was a pretty noted uh, theater actor, actress. Wow, nice pull. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, gosh, I, you know what? I, I'm sure she was a very nice lady. <laughs> I honestly would not have... You, you could have given me a thousand guesses, and I would not have come up with that. Honestly, the, like, I think the only thing I remember from 
that experience is uh, is not getting the part that I auditioned for, and then uh, screwing up the prop guy's day. <laughs> Roberta Maxwell. See, this is a name that I would be. I'm sure my dad. You know, if he listens to this, would be like, "Oh, Mac, you should know that." Is it a, a big theater actress, though. Yeah. Yes, she was in. Uh, and I, I will admit that I did not know all her credits until I looked them up. But uh, she had been in uh, Equus on uh, Broadway with Anthony Hopkins. Wow, God, can you imagine? And then it was, <laughs> and then you know, paying the rent by uh, working for ABC. Sure, why not? You know, it's the bills. I just remembered this. Oh man, this is so weird. I did an episode of uh, the Rose uh, uh, of Rosie O'Donnell uh, promoting a film. Gosh, this must have been like 2001, 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. And I remember you know, flying across the country to uh, New York City and, you know, uh, staying in a hotel and then getting up uh, and going to be on live television. I think they filmed it, you know, somewhere around 1130 in the morning. And I came out, oh, I forget what I was promoting, uh, but it was Rosie O'Donnell, which is, you know, exciting. And there's a live studio audience and you're also getting broadcast live, you know, to the uh, world, as it were, or the East Coast, I suppose. And she okay. says, the first thing she says is, so you've been doing this a long Long time. What was the first job that you ever had? And it was, you know, this is like information that has been in my brain forever and that I know and that I'm able to answer right away. But something about being on live television and that moment, all of a sudden, like I froze and the room started, like I could, I could feel the rotation of the earth. <laughs> and I had nothing coming out of my mouth. And I remember looking at Rosie, O'Don- or, uh, at Rosie O'Donnell and thinking, what am I going to do with my life now that I am frozen and can't answer this question on live TV? And somebody, thank goodness, uh, you know, said into her earpiece, Lois Gibbs in the Love Canal. <laughs> so, she said, so she prompted me with the name, and, uh, and then I launched into, I think, the story about the baseball club. But golly, that was a scary moment. I just, I just remembered that. <laughs> so now, how did you, I mean, obviously, like you said, both your parents were uh, well-established actors, uh, but how did you actually find your way into acting? Was it something that you wanted to do, or did they say, you know, get out of your system? <laughs> it, uh, it, was, it, came, it, it came, it happened very naturally, it came about very naturally. Sean, my big brother, who is uh, yeah. a magnanimously successful uh, actor in his uh, own right, um, <laughs> was doing um, an after-school special, uh, a movie of the week, uh, with my mom. They approached her um, and asked if he would be interested in playing the part of her son in something, uh, you know, I think it's one of those, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it, um, sort of disease of the week type sure. uh, <laughs> uh, MOWs, and it was called Please Don't Hit Me, Mom. <laughs> Uh, and nice. she was playing an abusive mother, and they wanted him to play her abused son. And he jumped at the chance, and she was excited to have him along. And they uh, went to work for three weeks making what was a pretty interesting little uh, TV movie with Nancy McKeon, Lance Guest, oh. um, <clears throat> which was so exciting because, I mean, that's the last Starfighter, right? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so uh, I went down to visit um, the set. Uh, you know, they were there maybe a week or so, and then I had the day off, or I forget what it was. Maybe they were shooting on a Saturday, and I went on down to say hello and, you know, check it out. And Sean was getting so much attention <laughs> that I thought, well, shit, I can do this. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I launched into uh, a campaign to try to get myself uh, in the business of show as well. And it took a little bit uh, to take. I think I was probably seven or so uh, when I went to the the set of that after school special and uh, <laughs> and got jealous <laughs> uh, and I think uh, nine is is the first gig uh, on uh, on the uh, Lois Gibbs and the Love Canal 
so funny though. It was literally sibling uh, rivalry. I mean, I just thought, oh, geez, this looks great. He also, I should say, he had a great studio teacher, a great uh, social worker, a set teacher uh, on that project. And <clears throat> the guy had set up, you know, just a very interesting classroom experience for him, even though it wasn't in a classroom. Like, it was at a location someplace in the San Fernando Valley. There was a decent-sized backyard of the house where they were shooting. And the school teacher, uh, the studio teacher for Sean, had, had set up like a, a scavenger hunt in the backyard. I think he was trying to teach him how to use a compass or something. And it was this incredibly exciting little lesson plan that uh, I think was probably even more captivating than um, the cute uh, girls applying makeup and stuff. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was great. It was, a really, it was a terrific experience to see him uh, you know, having that one-on-one -on -one education. And this scavenger hunt thing seemed so cool. So uh, I was sold uh, already, and that you know I, I lobbied enough to get um, to get my way you know in into the business. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just as a sidebar before moving on. It's funny uh, when I uh, talked to Nancy for the the facts of life oral history, she right. made a comment about how she, that you were the last member of uh, your family that for her to work with. <laughs> I, I didn't realize actually that she had worked with both your mom and Sean in that film. So that, right. that would explain that. Yeah, it was crazy. She was the, I think she was the babysitter that started to notice the bruises uh, and tried to do uh, something about it uh, in that. And then my, my dad had done an episode of The Facts of Life probably eight or nine or ten months, maybe the, you know, the season before I ended up yeah. uh, on the show. And so they had worked together on that as well. But it's so funny that she had like, I mean, you would think, uh, it's just so funny. Yeah, I was the last one of the family that, that she worked with. <laughs> what a delight she is. Oh, Nancy, Absolutely. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> Let's From see. Next up. To Nancy McKeon. <laughs> Indeed. And now on to I Dream of Jeannie 15 years later. <laughs> Hard to believe that it's been 35 years since it was 15 years later. <clears throat> or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Another, uh, another exciting adventure into the world of television movies. I Dream of Jeannie 15 years later, obviously uh, stemming from the uh, very successful television show in the 60s. It must have been 84 or 85 or so that we shot this. Uh, Sorry, 85, yeah. 85, yeah. yeah a great gig. Uh, a super exciting job to get to go play Barbara Eden's son. Are you kidding me? That's like, <laughs> that's, that's terribly exciting. Uh, I had powers. The, uh, the young uh, Tony, uh, oh my God, what's his last name? Well, young Tony. Oh, Nelson. Yeah, Tony Nelson. Young Tony Nelson was... Uh, you know, genetically connected to Jeannie, so uh, fortunately he, he had some special gifts as well. <laughs> that was a great gig. You know, that was like a lot of old, old Hollywood. Um, Michael Westmore was uh, the makeup artist uh, from the, you know, ridiculously famous uh, Westmore makeup family. You know, there's uh, are still legendary uh, in, in, in this business. In fact, I was just watching, God, what was I watching the other night? Um, His Girl Friday. And oh, yeah. uh, Purse Westmore was, you know, the makeup artist in that, and like to have and have not and stuff. So anyway, uh, that was really exciting to meet the Westmores. I remember that being kind of a big deal. And I don't know if how did they, I wonder if my mom was with me, you know, for a couple of days at work, and so there was automatically a connection between a lot of the people that were on the crew that knew her. But I think I, I distinctly remember her saying, like those Westmores, those are the, you know, those are the. Yeah, this is like the, the the huge makeups you know family in this business. They're the most talented and most successful and <clears throat> stuff. And I was like, that's great. Um, <laughs> it was weird about that 
movies that uh, Larry Hagman did not play Tony Nelson. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about that. If, if that was like something that had been in talks, then fell through, and that's why they got Wayne Rogers to replace him, or I know. if you even had any idea. I mean, I had I had no idea. I think you know I probably asked my mom what the deal was, and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the success of Dallas at the time. I think sure. I think Larry Hagman either didn't want to get out of his contract, couldn't get out of his contract, or just really didn't have any interest in going back in time 15 years uh, to play a part that he had, you know, was finished playing. And so, yeah, Wayne Rogers, uh, who is not Larry Hagman, played Tony Nelson, <laughs> which I think was a little uh, weird, you know, for some of the people watching the thing when it uh, finally aired. He was delightful. He was funny. You know what else was uh, hysterical? was Bill Daly, the guy who played uh, Roger Healy, Tony's buddy. Oh, yeah. Um, Bill Daly was, like, I distinctly remember him being very, very funny all the time. Like the kind of guy that was just making people laugh on a consistent basis no matter where he was or what he was doing. There was a, a funny moment, though, with uh, with him one day. So, you know, Jeannie's got powers. She can uh, blink her eyes and make everything happen. Uh, and I forget what the context of this scene was other than she had to change the decoration in the room where we were sitting, like, right away. I think, you know, she was, like, giving it a... a, a uh, makeover, the house makeover, like, you know, by blinking her eyes. Uh, yeah. And we, sh- we shot the second, uh, we shot the, we shot the after uh, set dressing first. Um, and there was a centerpiece on, uh, on the coffee table and Bill um, decided it would be funny if he was like holding something in his hand when Jeannie made the change and the thing <laughs> in his hand changed as well. And, uh, God, who was it? Would have been uh, Bill Asher. Yeah. The director, Bill Asher, was like, oh, it's a great idea. Bill loved it. Great, great idea. So we shot the second half, you know, the, the after the change thing and the rest of the scene. And then, you know, there was like lunch and set decoration came in and changed the whole set around to be the before stay set. And uh, we go to shoot the master for that scene. And like we're about, everybody gets, you know, placed and everything. And we're about to roll. And I keep looking at the coffee table, and there's nothing on the coffee table for Bill Daly to grab. And I keep looking at Bill Daly, and he's not, like, looking around for something to grab. And, like, they're about to roll the camera. And I'm, you know, 10. But still, I'm like, I know how this is supposed to work. So I finally, like, holler at somebody, like, hey, man, shouldn't he have something in his hand? And, like, the whole, like, you know, the, the ADs and the stage manager and Bill Daly, and everybody's like, oh, wow, good save, kid, good save. <laughs> so, like, I don't know, that was... <laughs> Even though it wasn't the real magical powers that Tony Nelson Jr. Uh, has in the film, I discovered that my powers of observation in some ways could be considered magical, at least in terms of not spending extra money on production. <laughs> <laughs> so how was Barbara Eden? Was she someone that you had known at all because of your mother? Or? Um, I mean, not personally. I had seen, uh, you know, a fair... Like, you know, Jeannie was... I, I Dream of Jeannie was one of the shows that got replayed, you know, that was in reruns and syndication, uh on the regular, so I was completely familiar with the show and, and loved it, even though, even though there was, there was a bit of like a, a chasm between Sean and I, because he was more of a fan of Bewitched, uh, and I was <laughs> a fan of Genie, and I'm sure it had everything to do with the exposed midriff. Uh, <laughs> so I knew her, but I didn't, uh, I didn't know her, know her, and I don't think, I don't think she and my, I mean, I think she and my folks knew one another, but they weren't chummy or anything, but she was a delight. She was an absolute delight, and you know, Thinking back, I, you know, I could tell she was, I mean, she was grateful to be continuing to work. She was grateful that she was still in great shape, obviously, because 15 years in show business for a woman can be, you know, a lifetime. 
Um, and so she was, I mean, she was just great. She was absolutely delightful, fun and funny and professional. And I think I made her laugh a few times. Like, I'm sure I made a couple of wry cracks that you wouldn't expect to come out of a 10 year old's mouth, (laughs) which is always a fun way to ingratiate yourself with an elder. (laughs) You know? Yeah, she was, she was great. I, I remember getting, I remember getting miffed at Bill Asher, the director though, because he, uh, there was a scene where he was supposed to be emotional for, you know, Tony Nelson Jr. I think he's saying goodbye to his dad and, uh, you know, his dad's going off on a mission to the moon, presumably. And I'm not yeah. sure if I'll see him again or whatever. And so they, uh, Bill Asher, the director, was like trying to make the day. So he called Mike Westmore, the makeup guy. He's like, hey, the kid's got to cry. Blow some of that menthol stuff in his eyes. In the business of show, sometimes when people are supposed to cry, they've got this little thing in the makeup department that is basically like a, a, a Vicks uh, vapo rub, but <clears throat> they can blow it in your eyeballs, and then your eyeballs immediately start to water because the menthol is painful, and then it looks like you're crying. Uh, and so, like, I was fully prepared to do the scene, like, you know, act, like to, you know, find the emotional thing and make it happen naturally. But Bill Asher was, like, trying to make the day, so he's, so, you know, without permission or anything, all of a sudden Mike Westmore comes over and he's like, hey, kid, look at me. And I looked at him and he goes, then all of a sudden, you know, there's water shooting out of my face. And I remember being, like, I remember having my feelings hurt by it, like thinking, you know, I could have done the job myself. And so I went home and complained to my mom and naturally my mom came down to the set or called down to the set and like put the word out that I was to be given the opportunity to act. (laughs) And I'm I'm sure there was a conversation at lunch between, you know, Bill Asher, the director, and a number of other production people where, you know, he said, and who the the heck does this kid think he is? You know, we're not doing, you know, this isn't Hamlet, son. (laughs) This is like 15 years later. Oh, man, it's funny. (laughs) Now, one thing I noticed in the cast of that, and I'm, Having not seen it in ages, I don't remember if you actually had any scenes with her. Nicole Eggert was in. I was going to say Nicole Eggert. Yeah, heck yeah, she was the girl that I was that I was soft on. And That's why I figured probably just based on the same age. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, we were in. I think she was the girl that I was trying to impress at school, and then this is early in the film. Uh, and then I think I use uh, my you know uh, genie powers to like fix her homework or give her a better grade or you know something. Uh, and she suddenly thinks that's uh, interesting. So yeah, we were we became friends. We were friends for a few years uh, thereafter. It, it was a a much smaller um, clique of child actors uh, back then. You know, there were only three networks <laughs> and sure. much less material, and so uh, there was a lot of uh, overlap uh, amongst the uh, the young actors. But uh, golly, did I have a crush on her? You kidding me, Nicole Eggert? So beautiful. So yeah, that was uh, that was an exciting uh, time for me. Ten years old. <laughs> uh, let's see. Then uh, next we've got uh, Harrison Bergeron. This job, what a job! Are you kidding me? What a job! First of all, I mean Kurt Vonnegut. I was a fan of the collection of short stories "Welcome to the Monkey House" before. Welcome to the Monkey House became a series on Showtime, and uh, and Harrison Bergeron is one of the shorts in that collection of short stories, and it's a fantastic short. It's all about how people in the future, in order to make them uh, 
not feel superior or not be superior uh, to anyone else. Uh, everyone is handicapped in a certain way. And the handicaps take different uh, frames. Like a guy who's real athletic has to wear like a 25-pound bag of shot around his neck. So he's less athletic. So he's not, you know, superior to other people. And if somebody's got great vision or something, he's got to wear these, you know, glasses that make his eyes terrible so that we're all equal. And I think Vonnegut was sort of taking the piss out of the idea that, um, you know, it's better if everybody's on the exact same level. Uh, you know, there was, I think it was a period of time, uh, I don't know, I'm not really sure what Vonnegut was going for. That's his idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew the story and was a fan of the story. And then Sean, my brother, got to play the lead in uh, the, um, you know, the film short version of Harrison Bergeron, which was so damned exciting. Uh, and somehow I finagled my way into being involved. I think what happened was there's a scene in the movie where Sean is flipping through the channels, uh, or where Harrison Bergeron is flipping through the channels uh, and comes across a golf tournament uh, where I think, they're, I think they were using, they were trying to show the different ways that people are handicapped in this dystopian future. And in the golf tournament, um, uh, fairly simply, like all the golf, like if the golfers, all their clubs, instead of being a solid club with like a solid shaft of metal, there was a, a section of surgical tubing so that like, uh, you know, that replaced the shaft. So, so that like, a, you know, a regular swing wasn't a regular swing. You had to combat this surgical tubing thing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So they needed somebody to play a golfer, and they needed somebody to play uh, the golf uh, broadcaster. And uh, so Sean asked my dad and I to do it. And thankfully, there was nothing going on, and we flew out to New York City uh, and, uh, and then drove upstate. This is where it gets incredible. One of the producers on that short is a guy named Joe Pearson. Joe Pearson happens to be the uh, grandson of a fellow named Nelson Rockefeller. Wow. Yeah. So <clears throat> Joe was making his way as a producer in show business and successfully so. Uh, uh, but he's, you know, still a member of the uh, Rockefeller uh, family. And so he actually put um, the Rockefeller uh, estate up for one of the places to be a location. They needed a golf course. There happens to be a golf course on the estate. And so that's where we shot the golf scenes for Harrison Bergeron. So we drive upstate about an hour and a half and we go to a place. Now, the, the Rockefeller Estate itself, I think, is like a museum now, and people can go visit and check it out. There's a little bit of a golf course uh, that's, I think it's nine holes, that's next to the estate. And there's also a building that still belongs to the family called the Playhouse. <laughs> so the Playhouse is where we got to stay uh, when we shot that sequence, which took all of an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> then we had the rest of the weekend to sort of hang out at the playhouse on the Rockefeller estate, which for Joe Pearson, the producer, was like, you know, a, a place that he'd grown up and spent a lot of time was like, you know, his family's sort of, you know, uh, cottage upstate. <laughs> man, oh man, oh man, this was a particularly interesting building. Like, uh, it was real big. Uh, I mean, like, massive. I mean, there were uh, two indoor pools and a basketball court and uh, a bowling alley at one end. And so uh, so we finished our shooting, and uh, you know, we were all done, and everybody was, you know, getting, going about uh, enjoying the weekend for themselves. Uh, my dad, <coughs> uh, he had other things. I think he was doing a show in Albany, so he went off back to Albany. 
uh, at which point uh, I began, uh, you know, uh, my, my, my serious drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, at the time, uh, ha- had some, jeez, uh, is this like an NC-17 show? It's it'll be on the internet. You can say anything. All right. So I had, I had some uh, some grass, some marijuana uh, on me, uh, and I was the only one of the group of people that were uh, participating in the show that was going to participate in the uh, taking in of uh, cannabinoid. Uh, but I did so, uh, and it happened to be um, right around the time everybody was uh, in the bowling alley. So like I snuck off, I snuck off, uh, you know, a couple of glasses of wine in already, and smoked my duber outside, and then came back in to the bowling alley, which was just two lanes uh, in, like, one end of the house, and it had this, uh, it had this sort of curved uh, ceiling uh, at the area where you sat, you know, at the end of the lanes before you, you did your bowling, and the, the curve of the ceiling, it, it was, this was only later that I realized it, the curve of the ceiling was such that um, if somebody was sitting across from you about six or eight feet away, maybe, no, 10, 10 12 feet away, you could, and speaking very softly, because of the acoustics and the shape of the ceiling, you could hear them very well, uh, but it was as if the voice was behind you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so imagine—I don't know if you've ever smoked marijuana, but if you're the only person smoking marijuana in a group of people that are not smoking marijuana, sometimes you can get a little paranoid. <laughs> and when you're sitting in a bowling alley where it's got acoustics that make it sound like somebody is talking behind you when there's nobody sitting behind you, it can make you a little paranoid. And when you look down at the bowling shoes that rest in a little bowling area that you have put on just because they look like they fit, and you see in Sharpie, written on the instep of the bowling shoes, the initials N-D-R, and you are at the Rockefeller Estate, and you are high out of your mind, and you look over to the grandson of a guy whose initials were N-D-R, that's Nelson, or, uh, what is it? Delano? I'm guessing. No, Nelson David Rockefeller. I suddenly realized, high as a kite, that I was in the vice president's shoes. <laughs> I had just smoked a duber in the vice president's bowling shoes. Holy cow. Uh, <clears throat> needless to say, you can see the paranoia 25 years later has yet to wear off. <laughs> it was an incredible experience on Harrison Bergeron. <laughs> and now... If I'm correct, that's actually the only time you and your father have been in the same uh, on-camera work. I think so. I, I, I did an episode of a show that he directed um, pretty early on, maybe the second or third job. I don't think we've been on camera in anything else. Yeah, leave it to that. Leave it to Sean to bring. Leave it to Sean and Kurt Vonnegut to bring us together <laughs> and the Rockefellers. It's funny we've uh, we've done a couple of staged readings of things together. I, he's, we, dad works at, uh, John Hopkins though. He runs the theater program, uh, yeah. there. And I worked with him for a little while, um, a few years ago. And so we've done a couple of plays together, but yeah, I think that marks the only time we've been on screen together. That is momentous. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Next up, uh, dream for an insomnia. Oh man. What a gig. What a gig. <laughs> You know what's nice about this uh, this particular uh, show, uh, Mr. Harris, is that it can remind people who are grateful for where they are uh, to be grateful for where they've been. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, yeah, Dream for an Insomniac. There's a story that I tell when people ask about this movie um, that's almost, uh, you know, wrote now, but it's such a good story. So that was a movie from 1995. That's when we shot it, 95? 
Ninety. Probably ninety six when it came 90, out. I think ninety. Yeah, ninety four, ninety five, probably ninety five. And I had uh, <clears throat> I had just worked on um, I had just worked on a movie that w- will probably be my one liner later in this episode. <laughs> and the first AD on that job uh, was going on to work on this thing called Dream for an Insomniac, and they didn't have the main guy, the the, the main male uh, actor yet. And so uh, the morning after the rap party of this other movie, uh, he called and said, "Dude, what are you doing?" I said, "Dude, I got a hangover." He said, "Dude, take a shower and get yourself down to this production office. I think I, I got your next job." I was like, "It's <laughs> like uh, okay," and it turned out that it, I was a, a good fit. So. Dream for an Insomniac was written and directed by a girl named Tiffany DeBartolo. Um, the name is not in the news as much now as it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, but um, mostly when people heard the name DeBartolo, it would make them think of the San Francisco 49ers, who at the time were owned by a gentleman named Eddie DeBartolo. As it turns out, uh, Tiffany DeBartolo is Eddie DeBartolo's daughter. <laughs> so <clears throat> we, uh, so she wrote this screenplay, uh, and because uh, you know, because of her family connections and because her dad had uh, you know pretty uh, deep pockets, uh, you know, the, I think the family comes from steel and they've got a lot of dough. Uh, it was financed uh, immediately. Um, you know, they they put up like a million bucks to make his daughter's uh, movie, and it's a great. Script and a lot of uh, interesting uh, people got attached right away. And, uh, you know, Ioni Sky was uh, playing the lead, and Jennifer Aniston, fresh from filming the first season of Friends, but before the show had started to air, signed wow. on to do a movie during her hiatus. Uh, and she was like the second uh, female banana in the thing. She wasn't even the lead of the thing. Well, that's how, that's how good the script was. Um, because, oh, God, it's just a great script. And so we had a ball um, staying in San Francisco at the St. Francis Hotel making this film, uh, which is a love story, uh, a cute um, and, you know, heartfelt love story. But here's the story behind the story. Tiffany okay. Bartolo wrote the thing as a love note. She had been going out with a guy. They had broken up. She wrote this script and put little... She, she wanted to get back together. She wrote this script and put little signs, little clues in the script for the guy to see if the movie were to get made and for him to know that she was still thinking about him and wanted to be with him. So, you know, because obviously uh, she was very well connected, the film got made. Uh, And the little clues uh, were in the movie. Like, there were a couple of particular props that were supposed to speak directly to this guy that she was longing for. It sat around for a little bit, and then I think Columbia bought it <coughs> and recut it and put some terrific music in it. And finally, the movie came out, you know, two and a half, three years down the road. And the guy that she wrote the thing for saw the movie, and he saw the clues that were meant for him to see. And he got the feeling that she was still pining for him. And so he reached out to her, and they got back together, and they have been married for 15 years. That is awesome. Which is the most romantic thing in the daggum world. I mean, the movie itself is super romantic and cute and heartfelt and well-meaning and about people sort of chasing the things that they want to go after in their life. And this girl, Tiffany DeBartolo, did exactly that. And, you know, through the good graces and good fortune of her birth, was able to get this thing, you know, published and out there. And it worked! They're married today! It's so great! That's awesome. She's also a, a successful uh, novelist uh, these days. 
and I think a music producer as well. I think she's got a music company. She's fantastic. I root for her. Well, I have to say that when I first uh, rented the film, uh, obviously I, I was a huge Friends fan, so it was uh, nice to see Jennifer Aniston, but I had been so smitten with Ioni Skye oh, since Say Anything. Of course. That's why I wanted to see Of that. course. Are you kidding me? <gasps> I mean, also the Mackenzie Aston factor. Right, right. right. Sure, sure. That, that. No, Ioni Skye said to me uh, a couple of things that I still carry with me. She said, the three most important things in life are timing, lighting, and posture. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm reminded of that. Uh, well, I, I slouch a lot, so uh, every day. <laughs> oh, Ioni, yeah, good choice, good choice. She's a delight. Excellent. And I guess that's probably the least obscure of the obscurities, but uh, because of Jennifer Aniston's mere presence, but uh, I still think a lot of people may not be aware of it. It was amazing to watch because the show started airing around the time that we were filming, and so people were beginning to recognize her uh, on the street. And to think, you know, to think of, it's, it's almost, you know, quaint uh, and cute and uh, to, to think about the experience then as compared to what it would be like for her, you know, six, seven years down the road where, you know, well, still, you know, where she's just as big a star as there is. Oh, it's wild. I'm, I'm glad we got her when we did. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so next up, uh, yeah, your, your worst fears may be realized here, uh, Widow's Kiss. I'm going to play my first card, Mr. Harris. <laughs> For Widow's Kiss, I will be playing the one-liner. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and what is the, uh, the one-sentence uh, reason why you are choosing not to go into detail? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that there's a few commas in this sentence, but it is one sentence. <laughs> okay. The one sentence regarding Widow's Kiss is... One might consider one's future, one's future in-laws, one's expectations of one's future self, before one dives headlong into an opportunity to appear in whole or in part in what may one day come to be called by those closest to one, the butt movie. <laughs> yes, and now everyone will be Googling to see if Widow's Kiss is online. Oh, so. the butt movie. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Mr. Harris. Thank you very much. <laughs> so moving on, since I promised there would be no follow-up. Uh, everything but the girl. Everything but the girl. What a good experience. I don't think anybody's ever uh, seen it. It was a pilot uh, for, I think, NBC. I think they, pro they produced it anyway, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say it. No, that helps. It makes me feel like I might actually remember <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was a pilot for NBC uh, that we shot in 2000, uh, and that starred um, uh, Tiffany Thiessen, and this was right around the time uh, that she had dropped the amber, so it was Tiffany Thiessen. Um, it was Tiffany Thiessen, it was myself, it was a gentleman named Brad Rader, and a gentleman named Brian Scalero, and a gentleman named Andy Blitz, uh, who's a writer for Conan for a number of years and for Saturday Night Live, uh, and, a, and a comedian as well. Uh, and it uh, didn't go, obviously, but it was a great experience um, <clears throat> because, huh, you know, it's funny if you're if you if you're lucky enough to stick around in this business for long enough, everything sort of overlaps in a way, uh, and you know, stories that are unfinished finish themselves, and things that feel um, uh, things that feel like they still deserve uh, a little bit of uh, attention get that attention. What had happened was. In 1999, the year before, I had done a pilot for ABC uh, that was th uh, th at that point called People Who Fear People, 
uh, would later become a show called, would be retitled a sh- uh, The Trouble with Normal, which I think okay, did yeah. about a dozen episodes that uh, starred John Cryer, uh, David Krumholtz, uh, Patrick Brewster. Patrick Brewster, that's right. Um, that's funny, Patrick Brewster. Uh, and, uh, God, Larry Campbell was on that show. And it was a terrific, terrific show that, um, Andy Ackerman directed, uh, and was great. It was, uh, John Hamm, as a matter of fact, was also on that show. John Hamm was, you know, like the fourth banana on that show. Um, I had, I was, uh, in the pilot, uh, uh, the original pilot that they shot, and then uh, they decided to recast. So uh, <laughs> I was no longer in uh, that show. There was it was uh, it was me and uh, gosh, an actress named Maria Patillo, uh, who played the role that Paget Brewster ended up playing. Uh, so Maria Patillo and I were recast, and a guy named Brad Raider ended up playing the part that I had played. So the trouble with normal went for seven uh, episodes uh, or so, and you know uh, was. I think I, I, I thought it was a funny show, but I had that experience where, like, oh my god, they recast me. Like, I wasn't good enough. They people hate me. Who the hell is this other guy that they got that was better than me? You know, all these ridiculously insecure thoughts that go through an actor's mind uh, from the moment he wakes up until, uh, well, I guess until he dies. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so. Uh, and so there was a whole, you know, like he, there was this, you know, period of time where I was really frustrated and disappointed and so forth and so forth. Um, but then the following year, on Everything But the Girl, lo and behold, I get to work alongside the guy who had replaced me in The Trouble with Normal. The actor named Brad Raider ended up playing a different part in uh, Everything But the Girl. And it was this fantastic experience where all the onus and bullshit and, like, negativity that I had put out there about who is this guy that replaced me, who's better than me, all that went out the window, uh, you know, and I got a much better perspective uh, on, uh, you know, just we're all, we're all, you know, squirrels looking for a nut out here. <laughs> and, like, you, you can't. You can't hold grudges against people. I mean, the guy was just anyway. It was it was really delightful that um, that it sort of came back around so quickly, and I was able to you know put the put the stop to you know that sort of negative thinking that feeds on itself. Um, unfortunately, everything with the girl uh, didn't go so well either. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was a job where I should have cut my hair. I've seen a couple <laughs> clips on uh, television. I really should have cut my hair. <laughs> but yeah. well, what I think is most interesting about that is uh, that it was uh, Steve Corin who like, had done Saturday Night Live, but also uh, wrote quite a bit for Seinfeld. Yeah, and was fresh from uh, Seinfeld at that point. And it was interesting because, like, you know, as soon as Seinfeld finished, like the guys that were involved with it were, you know, they had the Midas touch. Anything they wanted to do, they could do. That was, you know. That show was so incredibly successful, and so um, this was Steve's project. After Seinfeld, and uh, and it was you know it was good. It's interesting. This you know the business is the business, and and the executives are executives, and the way stuff the way stuff works. You know, a, a, a guy who's a writer like Steve Corm, who's a, you know successful writer and and talented and 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 whatnot. Um, what he puts down on the page to begin with is not necessarily what ends up getting filmed. You know, there are a lot of different layers of um, administration that uh, stuff has to go through. And I think in some ways for um, middle management to quantify their position, they have to sort of make uh, creative decisions or they have to, uh, you know, Im- you know, they have to put their finger on stuff. Uh, and so 
unfortunately, I think what happens sometimes is you get guys who are not necessarily the most uh, creative in terms of uh, you know dialogue and jokes and stuff making creative decisions because they are executives at a network. Uh, that's yeah. just the way the thing goes. I can distinctly remember with this project, with everything but the girl, sending my dad <laughs> um, copies of the script, like like the script that I signed the contract to portray and the script that we ended up shooting, uh, which were vastly different. And uh, <laughs> one was, you know, nowhere near as funny as the other. And that's just, I mean, that's just the way this business works. You know, I think it's actually changed a little bit over the last couple of years because there are, with the, you know, um, the success of the cable networks and the success of the shows that are more avant-garde and more creative, I think the, the big three are getting the idea that um, sometimes it's important to let the creative people do the creative thinking. Uh, yeah. and those, the, the administration is important for sure, for sure, but like administer the finished product not, not the, you know, not, not the creative stuff. So next we've got uh, Laughter on the 23rd Floor. Oh, what a cast. What a cast. What a cast. What a cast. First and foremost, it's important to say that I think I was the third or fourth choice to play the part that I played. Uh, <laughs> I was the Rosalind Russell of the film, if you will, if you will. Um, yeah, actually, uh, technically, there was a fellow who got the part originally who was working, I think, on Dawson's Creek, and so he had to go back to work on that and couldn't do it. And then uh, Richard Benjamin, uh, the director, um, uh, was hoping his son uh, could play uh, the part of Lucas, um, which is essentially Neil Simon uh, in, in the piece. Uh, but uh, Showtime didn't sign off uh, on his son, and so uh, they went to the third choice, uh, which was me. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Castellaneta, okay? Nathan Lane, Perry, I mean, that's Homer Simpson. Nathan Lane, Perry Gilbert, Victor Garber, Saul Rubinick, Zach Grenier. That cast was so unbelievably talented. And the fact that I was able to weasel my way in there as their third choice <laughs> is so lucky for me because, you know, and it, what's nice is that it paralleled in a lot of ways uh, this, the Neil Simon story you know, in that he was a super young writer on your show of shows and uh, and learned a lot from these other larger-than-life uh, figures. And boy, oh boy, was that what it was like. So, uh, Toronto, the year 2000, uh, is where we were filming it. <clears throat> Everybody on the cast, um, more than anything, wanted to hear Homer Simpson. <laughs> but, you know, everybody was extremely respectful of Dan Castellaneta's, you know, uh, doing Homer Simpson. You know, that was like, that was like, it's like a big deal. You know, that's, Homer's a big deal, especially amongst the creative uh, people. And that cast is so talented. So nobody asked him. Everybody was too afraid to say, you know, hey, Dan, can we hear you do a little bit of Homer Simpson? Uh, you know, there's this sort of professional respect and distance uh, that exists. Uh, and so we're about two weeks into the filming, and we're shooting the scene that starts the movie off. And it's a scene at the... <clears throat> all the writers on your show of shows have gone out to eat after they've, uh, they've, you know, been, they've done a live episode. And Sid Caesar, ostensibly, uh, which is the part that Nathan Lane is basically playing, uh, is holding court. And all the writers are around the table laughing, laughing, laughing. And Richard Benjamin, the director, has set up a shot that starts on the left side of the table and pans across eight or ten writers. 
until who are all in hysterics, who then get to uh, you know the shot ends on uh, Nathan Lane, uh, who's finishing up a story and laughing himself, and so. The way we shot it, it just ended up that we shot everybody else, and Nathan was the last person to go. And by this time, we had been pretending to laugh for a number of hours, and we were kind of laughed out. And so <clears throat> this was also happening right before lunch, and there was a uh, uh, everybody was sort of wrapping out of the set because we had to move to a different location. Uh, and so there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of crew members, you know, picking stuff up and carrying stuff around and hustling between takes. And so the camera finally gets around to Nathan Lane, and he's got to laugh. He's got to be laughing, and he wants it to be authentic. He wants it to be, you know, real. And so he says out loud, "Hey Dan, do Homer, do Homer, was it do Homer having sex, right?" <laughs> And this was the first time anybody had actually said the words Homer out loud. There had been plenty of people whispering the word Homer back and forth, like, not around Dan. Like, is he going to do Homer? Do we going to hear Homer? Are we going to hear Homer? And Nathan, you know, with the chips down and needing a laugh, says, hey, Dan, do Homer. And you could hear a pin drop. People put stuff down on the truck, in the street, in the alleyway, outside the building. And, like, people opened up their walkie-talkies so the microphone, so you could hear everything. Like, all of a sudden, it was going to happen. So Nathan goes, do Homer, do Homer having sex. And then we all heard, oh, I wish Marge was here. <laughs> it was outstanding. And then, uh, it was outstanding. And then Dan uh, launched into a rendition of O Canada. Uh, or it was Homer Simpson singing O Canada uh, and getting the lyrics wrong. And I, I wish, you know, I could remember it. If this was before uh, iPhones were around everywhere, and I'm sure it's probably a good thing. But God, it was brilliant <laughs> to hear Dan Castellaneta do Homer Simpson singing the Canadian national anthem and getting all the words wrong. Needless to say, Nathan <laughs> laughed and laughed and laughed, as did we all. Oh, it was outstanding. What a gig. What a gig. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So next we've got two days. Mm. What a, that was an interesting job. That was an interesting experience. I only worked uh, one day on uh, two days. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was it's funny. It's one of those parts where you get the breakdown. And like I looked at it and I thought, oh, yep, I'm going to get this. Because the description <laughs> was quite simply uh, an actor who's been working in Hollywood for a number of years that everybody thinks is gay but swears he's not. Which is <laughs> something that I have come across uh, in my, you know, uh, experience uh, quite a bit. That's just, I don't know, I think it's how I'm drawn. <laughs> uh, and so, like, I just knew going in that this was the kind of thing that I could knock out. And I went in, had a good audition, got the job, uh, and then got to go to work with a pretty talented collection of individuals, right? Paul yeah. Rudd, Adam Scott. Um, I mean, just right there, you have a couple of uh, very talented individuals. I was jealous, uh, to be honest, uh, because there was like this, you know, click amongst... So in the movie, uh, Paul Rudd is an, uh, a guy who is uh, despondent and decided that he's going to off himself uh, and he's going to have his friend, uh, who's a, a, a burgeoning documentary filmmaker, a burgeoning filmmaker, follow him around for two days, documenting the last two days of his life. I think a girl has broken up with him, and that's why he's uh, super despondent. And so there was the, the click surrounding the filmmaking crew uh, that's following Paul right around that, um, you know, had been spending the whole time on the movie together. And so, like, everybody had inside jokes and, like, you know, was getting along super well, and I was so jealous because I was, like, on the outside of that 
Um, anyway, we, we, we shot the scenes, and I, I, I had a, a, a front row seat for Paul Rudd ad-libbing stuff. That is just so ridiculously funny. Uh, and it was uh, it was terrific. It was absolutely terrific. I, I had a, I mean, you know, and this is going to bring the room down. <laughs> I had a weird experience, though. It was a good learning um, lesson. Is that how you said it? It was a good learning lesson? Yeah. Terrific. Good, good English. Well, it was a good lesson, though. Um, like, sometimes, I don't know, sometimes the body doesn't necessarily know that the brain is pretending. So, like, we, we had to shoot, we had to shoot this one s- section that I don't think ended up in the film. I was playing an actor on a soap, uh, and they wanted to shoot part of the soap that you might see, like, on television in the background. And so the director um, had had me, like, like, the scene that we were shooting for the soap was going to be me, like, choking uh, a woman uh, to death. Like, he wanted to be sort of big in soap opera acting uh, stuff. And so, like, I went for it. Like, you know, a shaky face and crazy eyes. And, like, we did a few takes of it. It was the last thing we shot uh, uh, that day. You know, everybody else had taken off. And we just were sort of cleaning up with this thing. But, like... I, it was strange, like, because we finished, and then, I, you know, I, I walked out of the building where we were shooting and got in the car, and, like, I was shaking still, and, like, my body, like, I felt, like, guilty, like, I had done this horrible thing wrong, you know, because I had just been pretending to, to, to throttle uh, someone, and so, <clears throat> and I don't know, my, when I think back about that movie, like, I remember that experience, and that one needs to be cautious when totally embodying a violent act, because the body doesn't necessarily know that you're kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, that's a weird sort of uh, aside. Maybe I should have used the uh, just say no, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm sure you will use it between one of these last four. Uh, next up, uh, welcome to Ibiza. I will say this. Perhaps in real life, I just should have said no <coughs> to welcome to Ibiza. <laughs> However, uh, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, it's important to remember it was uh, the summer of 2001. There was a Writers Guild strike uh, on the horizon. Uh, which uh, I think came to pass for a little bit, and so there was going to be a dearth of uh, paying work, um, you know, in the future. And uh, um, at that period of time, I was living in a little two-bedroom house uh, (coughs) in uh, Hollywood, and uh, Sean, my brother, and his wife uh, had just gotten back from shooting The Lord of the Rings, over a period of two and a half years in New Zealand, or three years in New Zealand. And in that period of time, because those guys weren't paid too much money up front, um, they had sort of lost their house. They had to sell the house that they were living in. And so they didn't have a place to live. Sean called me up and was like, dude, can I stay at your house for a couple of months? I'm like, absolutely. And so my brother and his wife and their uh, four-year-old and their dog... uh, moved in uh, with me in this little, little uh, two-bedroom house in Hollywood. Uh, I was, at the time, uh, a much rowdier uh, young feller, uh, spent a lot of time uh, drinking and drugging, and so <laughs> the vibe that I was putting out didn't necessarily jibe with the vibe that they were putting out, and it was nice, yes, but like when I was stumbling home at two in the morning or trying to sleep at you know two in the afternoon, and the four-year-old was running around like I was like, this is not working. So a friend of mine, uh, who was the delight, uh, happened to be working as a line producer 
on uh, a very, very, what could only loosely be termed a film uh, called Welcome to Ibiza. The, uh, oh, jeez. The, uh, the idea behind the film is that uh, there's three girls that, uh, three expatriates that find themselves, uh, young girls that find themselves on the island of Ibiza, uh, and uh, they become friends, they open a bar together. Uh, I, I was to play the boyfriend or the, uh, the jilted lover of one of the, the three young girls who has followed her to Ibiza to try to work their relationship out. There's all kinds of weird hijinks and uh, stuff that happen uh, within the context of the film that are completely unbelievable and uh, tropey and uh, stupid and absurd. And so, But my friend was uh, one of the producers on it, and so he sent me the script. I read it. It was terrible, but... <laughs> The Writers Guild strike was about to happen. My brother was like living in my house, and I didn't really wasn't comfortable. What? I mean, it's like we got along fine, but like I wanted to be drinking and smoking weed and uh, doing other things, and like you know, it's not easy to do that around a four year old. Uh, and so my buddy uh, Nicholas Kingston, who was producing uh, on the film, called me up, and he, he from England, and he's like, "Listen, there's not a lot of money." But it's gonna be six weeks on Ibiza, and it's gonna be a good time. <laughs> last, the last thing he said to me, like as part of his pitch, I had this, uh, I had this ridiculous white suit that I had bought in New Orleans uh, on another excursion with this fellow Nicholas Kingston. Uh, and uh, it was a beautiful suit. And I wore it, uh, you know, like for 10 days straight in New Orleans, tripping over myself, and it became a road map of where I'd been. There was crawfish at Touffet on one side and Budweiser down one leg. It was a mess. But my friend Nicholas says to me, Are you prepared to ride a jet ski in the Mediterranean in the wide suit? <laughs> uh, to which I replied immediately, uh, Yeah. Uh, and so off I went uh, to Ibiza uh, for six weeks uh, to make this uh, what could only be loosely termed film. Welcome <laughs> to Ibiza. Uh, as it happens, I arrived in Ibiza on September 1st, 2001. Uh, so we started principal photography on September 12th, 2001. And you can imagine that the day before we started principal photography... Uh, was a weird day. I happened to be uh, just coming back from kind of a liquid lunch. Uh, I wasn't working that. It was the day before we were starting principal photography. And had, <laughs> this is horrible, had snuck into the writer's <laughs> uh, office and stolen from his desk a little bit of marijuana because I wanted to, uh, you know, take the edge off. Uh, and thought, right before I was swiping this guy's weed, I thought to myself, oh, this is one of those stupid things you do, and then bad things happen, don't do this, but I did it. And walked out of the office, and a guy came around the corner, another guy on the crew, Jim Shanks, and he said, Mac, have you seen the television? I said, what? He said, someone's flown a plane into the World Trade Center. I said, on purpose? And I looked out at my hand at the weed that i just stolen and thought, man, did I do this? <laughs> Clearly, I, I hadn't. Uh, but yeah, it was really bizarre because all of a sudden I was a bazillion miles from America while America uh, had gotten its ass kicked uh, suddenly one afternoon yeah. or one morning. Uh, so I called uh, my brother. One of my older brothers was a flight attendant for United at the time. And so I called to make sure he wasn't in the air. And thankfully, he wasn't. Uh, his wife uh, was, but thankfully, she wasn't uh, on one of those uh, flights. 
And then I called my brother at my house in Los Angeles. I said, dude, turn on the television. And then I called my dad and told him to turn on the television. And then, you know, watched from thousands of miles away on CNN International and Sky News and whatnot, uh, watched the second plane hit. And it was just so... It was a really interesting experience to be that far away from the United States during that time because... To be honest, the uh, the Dutch people on the crew and the Spanish people on the crew had a much different take on the events of September 11th than did the people to whom it happened, obviously, and also the people surrounding the people that it happened to. Um, because, I don't know, it was just a much different perspective. Uh, and, you know, it's, it gets awfully political, so I sh- probably shouldn't go into it. <laughs> so anyway, so that happened the day before we started uh, shooting which was so fucking bizarre. Pardon my French. And because I had already a uh, affinity for the sauce and uh, smoking grass and for doing other stuff, uh, <laughs> uh, and the island of Ibiza is known amongst the European party crew as White Island, <laughs> I have come to say that the experience of uh, Welcome to Ibiza was when I broke my nose from the inside. <laughs> But you turned it around. Yeah, oh yeah, turned it around for sure. But it was, it was a really interesting, you know, time, obviously, in all of our lives. Uh, and, you know, God, it was so, it was a different country. I came home to a different country, you know. It was a different country. Ah, anyway, um, the movie itself is terrible. If you come across it on, uh, you know, the internet, uh, you could really probably spend uh, two hours uh, doing something more enriching uh, for your life. Uh, <clears throat> but if you do happen to watch it, the scene where I dive into the uh, the bay uh, in Ibiza uh, was a lot of fun to shoot, uh, but I also think I caught a number of uh, bugs. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why? I, I guess I should just ask on general principle, did you have a, a Gary Busey story at all? That guy. I mean, there are several. <laughs> that guy <laughs> is an interesting guy. That guy is a very interesting guy. He... Uh, He's a very interesting guy. <laughs> I mean, he's... For legal purposes, if you need to leave it at that, I would understand. So, like, I was carrying around this video camera uh, most of the time that I was there, just sort of filming stuff that uh, was happening as it was happening, just for my own edification, shits and giggles, whatnot. And I happened to have it along with me one night at a dinner with him, and I was filming sort of surreptitiously. Like, it probably wasn't cool, and I would imagine if I was in the United States, it was completely illegal, but, you know, it was international waters. So, yeah, I was just sort of, you know, like, filming him because he was so interesting and weird and completely Gary Busey. Uh, (laughs) And so a couple of years, at one point at the dinner, like, he looked down and saw the lens. He goes, is that thing on? (laughs) I was like, yeah. He goes, all right. And he kept on going. So, like... Two years later, when there was that show, I'm with Busey, where they were yeah. following around with a camera, I felt responsible for the idea in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> He's an interesting cat, man. He's an interesting cat. This business can do a number on people. People can do a number on people. People are complex. You know, drinking and drugs are complex. Uh, massive head injuries are complex. Um, you know, people are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right, so next, uh, we are in the home stretch here. Uh, military intelligence and you. What a concept, right? What a concept. Yeah. So, the, uh, gosh, what is the, uh, the, 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 arm, so the United States Army during World War II had the, 
the first the film division, I think is what it was called, or the Army mm. Film Corps. Uh, and what it was was uh, a group of uh, sh- sh- show business folk, you know, people from Hollywood, uh, who were using their skills to the best of their ability uh, to help with the war effort. So there were all kinds of propaganda films that existed about, like, how to be a good soldier, what to expect going overseas. Like, there was a lot of stuff that was romanticizing the idea of being a pilot, uh, of being a Marine, of being, you know, of uh, going to fight the Hun. Oh, wait, no, it wasn't the Hun, then, was it? Going to fight, uh, well, the Nazis. Uh, and uh, so the first film division, I can't remember, I'm saying it wrong. So there was all this incredible footage uh, of actors like William Holden, actors like uh, the 39th president of the United States, or no, 40th, uh, Ronald Reagan, um, uh, that, you know, were in uniform and, uh, and, and you know, pitching the big uh, U.S. Army effort. Uh, and it is now part of, um, uh, what do they call it, when everybody can use it, uh, public domain. Uh, and so uh, the, the guy that, um, that put together military intelligence and you uh, got his hands on all this footage and sifted through it and found a couple of different uh, you know, plot lines and then decided to write a piece around that existing footage that basically was an attack on the foreign policy of uh, the Bush administration, uh, the younger Bush administration, 43. Uh, and, and the movie was, you know, basically taking to task the, uh, the foreign policy, um, you know, the, the invasion of Iraq, uh, the second one. Uh, well, wait, no, we didn't invade the first time, right? We just liberated Kuwait. Well, anyway. Um, so it was great and terribly exciting. And this was 2004. So the war, no, 2004. So the war had been on for uh, a little over a year at the time. And the script was funny and quick and weird and a brilliant idea for this guy to interweave a narrative that was, um, well, anti our current foreign policy alongside this footage that was the completely opposite idea, like in total support of the foreign policy at the time. And it's brilliant, because uh, I can actually say that I'm in a movie with uh, William Holden. <laughs> there you uh, go. And a movie with Ronald Reagan. Wow, amazing. Um, and curiously, you know, when, when we were filming it, um, when we were filming it was when, when uh, the media reported that we had lost uh, our thousandth, our one thousandth uh, servicemen, um, you know, as a casualty of uh, the invasion. Uh, and uh, and so there was a joke that uh, that was in the movie that that got pulled. I think you know I, th- I think the guy I think the fellow that um, wrote it was uh, I don't know, maybe felt guilty or felt like it wasn't honoring the servicemen or whatever because there was a piece in the in in the in the, the the part of the movie that you know we were shooting <laughs> where some guys come running in from the background with a mission accomplished sign uh, and one of the generals says uh, no no not yet. Uh, and it was a great, you know, gag for, you know, uh, from a, a liberal perspective or from a perspective that was uh, against uh, the invasion of Iraq uh, and, you know, the announcement of uh, mission accomplished well before the mission was uh, accomplished, so to speak. Uh, anyway, we cut that gag, uh, which is a bit of a bummer looking back on it now because I think it was, I think it was funny, but I guess it's a nice thing that uh, we were trying, I mean, the, the reason that we cut that gag is that it was, you know, because there was news of another, you know, death. Oof. Yeah. So it was a, yeah. there's a Japanese expression, hendoku yaku, 
uh, that I think literally translated means to turn poison into medicine. And I think, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of the country was still sort of in shock uh, in 2002 and 3 and 4 um, because of what happened in New York in 2001 and in uh, Washington and in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and so I think people in this business who, uh, you know, who are creative were trying to turn that poison into medicine. And, you know, laughter, uh, as we know, is, is a good medicine. So it was, it was an interesting effort. It was a good effort. Unfortunately, I think it ends up being too long, <laughs> both uh, the movie and uh, the efforts uh, militarily in the Middle East. Um, but that's, you know, that's another story for another day. <laughs> All right. So then we've got uh, Elfman. Just say no. Fair enough. <laughs> Having seen the trailer, I, I don't begrudge you that one. <laughs> and then we come to the last one, uh, D-Tech. And the last one is, is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whip out my switcher. Fair enough. I mean, not that... Uh, well, I just think there's a... There's another movie that's on the list called Off the Lip, uh, which yeah. uh, which is an interesting experience uh, as well. Um, we've, we filmed it in uh, 1999 on the island of Maui, uh, and the uh, story behind the film is, uh, or the story of the film, is that a, a young girl working for, and this is just, just the pitch itself is so dated, uh, <laughs> a young girl working for an internet surf zine... <laughs> <laughs> is assigned by her uh, her bosses to go to Maui uh, and track down a mythological big wave surfer known as the Monk. Right. <laughs> what was really going on, I think, was uh, the guys that produced uh, and directed it were um, actually like doing it as a vacation and a tax write off. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, I got the the script, and it looked like uh, something that could be fun and different uh, to play. And I auditioned well and uh, and got uh, the part. And we had a couple of rehearsals in L.A. before we took off to Maui for six weeks, which was also, you know, kind of a nice uh, part of the experience. But there's a there's a joke that keeps getting repeated in uh, in the story where so I play uh, th th there's the main girl who's uh, working for <laughs> an Internet surf zine <laughs> uh, who's going to find the monk. And I play her boyfriend, uh, who is a, a burgeoning filmmaker uh, who takes along uh, a little film crew to follow her as she tries to find the mythological big wave surfer known as the monk. Uh, and so the camera, um, you know, there was some, some Dogma 95 ideas behind it. So the camera is an established character. The camera is a real uh, piece. You know, there's not, we're not going from a narrative perspective. It's like the first person thing is going on. Uh, and so it's my camera crew from like a Pep Boys commercial that is uh, basically following the action of the film. And there's a gag that keeps getting repeated where my boom operator, so the, the sound guys uh, in my little tiny, you know, film crew uh, keep uh, dying, like getting bumped off. Uh, and in the story, uh, somebody who's a, a native, uh, a local to the island uh, tells me that the reason my sound guys keep getting bumped off is because I don't have any respect for the island and that I need to have the film that I'm making blessed. So I say to the guys making the film before we go there, hey, so are we going to get the film blessed? And they're like, 
what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, well, you got this bit in here where the, you know, people keep getting hurt because uh, the film hasn't been blessed, and I'm wondering if like, you're actually going to get the film blessed. And they both, like, you know how when a dog hears a noise that it doesn't recognize and it turns its head to the side and makes that funny thing? So they, they both looked at me like that. Shem Bitterman and, uh, oh, geez, Robert, uh, oh, Robert Michaels. Uh, and so they both look at me like I'm, you know, out of my mind, which I, I, I can't say that I'm not. But I thought it was a decent idea because, you know, well, be careful what you write. So we go to Maui, and we get the film blessed. Uh, an amazing lady, uh, a, a native, uh, you know, a, a Hawaiian local, um, blesses the film the morning of the first day of shooting. And uh, says a prayer in Hawaiian and then translates, uh, you know, that basically asks that we respect the island. And that uh, we look after the island and that we, uh, you know, try to promote uh, creativity and love and that we, uh, you know, clean up after ourselves. And in return, the island will uh, protect us. So as it happens, um, a couple of people uh, on the film, and I don't want to name names, but I'm going to point the finger at some point, um, (laughs) were more focused on making the film than uh, anything else. And interestingly, um, the director of the film, uh, was exhibiting some of the characteristics of the character that I was playing in the film in that uh, it wasn't necessarily respecting uh, the locals or the island. So, like, we're shooting in this place called Ho'okipa, which is on the north shore of Maui and is a place where they actually have surf competitions because the waves are so big and crazy. And we're shooting, we'll be shooting there throughout the day. And the first thing we do when we get there in the morning uh, is we lay down some dolly track that happens to go over uh, a handicapped parking spot in the parking lot. And as soon as the dolly track goes down, like, a car pulls up and a guy asks to park there. He's got a handicap sticker and stuff like that. And, like, my instincts tell me at this point, like, move the dolly track 15 feet south and it's no problem. Let the guy park there because it's not our island. <laughs> well, that's not exactly what happened, uh, you know. And there was a little bit of, a, of an argument about uh, who owned the property uh, and where the dolly track could be. And, like, I started to get this sinking feeling in my stomach. And so... Are you there? I'm still here, yeah. And so keep shooting throughout the day, and I keep seeing, like, the locals uh, that were occupying one part of the Ho'okipa Beach uh, Beach Park, like, you know, know, watching us and kind of making fun of us. And, like, you know, I just was worried about, like, us leaving trash around and stuff like this. So the last shot I want to get on the day before the sun sets is a shot of the girl, Marguerite Moreau, uh, and uh, the uh, local guide who's been assigned to her giving her a surf lesson. And they've attached a camera to the end of uh, the surfboard uh, that she's getting the lesson, on which she's getting the lesson. That surfboard happened to belong <laughs> to uh, a surf photographer who had passed away a couple of years before who was known for playing pranks. On- <laughs> right? So, like... <laughs> So this guy, I think his name was Billy. And so the last shot of the day happened to be the biggest swell of the day. And it had been worked out beforehand that the director of our film was going to be in the water and setting up the shot. And when the camera was on, he would duck underwater and be out of the shot. Well, it happened to be the heaviest swell of the day. So he turned the camera on, he ducked underwater, and then a bigger wave than had been all day long came in and carried the surfboard with the girl and the boy on it, the actors, uh, and landed on a bed of coral. 
<laughs> the actor on the back of the surfboard banged his uh, ankle on the coral. And if you, I don't know if you know about coral, it's not something you want to hit. <clears throat> and the director, who perhaps had not been respecting the film or respecting the island or respecting the locals, had the water smash his face on the coral. So, like, the water goes away, and where I was standing, like, on the shore, like, you know, watching it happen, uh, and he comes up out of the water, and there's just a whole lot of blood running down the center of his forehead. And, like, it was, I mean, it was intense. And so he comes out of the water, and we walk him up towards where the uh, ambulance, essentially, is going to pick him up. And the actor uh, as well, who's got, you know, a gash that needs about 15 stitches on his ankle. And also, they have to irrigate that stuff because the coral can grow inside of you. It's oh, really yeah. painful. Anyway, we're walking them up the stairs, and we have to go past the locals. And all the locals are over the moon <laughs> about these howlies who've gotten what they deserved. You know, they said, oh, you got a little refresh, bro. Oh, yeah, that's all right, man. It'll be okay. Make sure they wash it good. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the moral of off the lip uh, is be careful what you write, because uh, sometimes you can write stuff that comes true. <laughs> that comes true. <laughs> anyway, it was a good experience. Um, I highly recommend getting your stuff to Maui at some point. Just uh, respect the island. <laughs> well, it seems like a perfect closing moment. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Mac, thank you so much for, uh, like I say, taking the time and, and being my uh, guinea pig test subject, what have you. Hey, uh, the pleasure's mine. It's been, it's been a, a treat to be a part of it, and I look forward to, uh, to hearing more episodes.